to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Jeffrey Groman, founder of Groman Cyber, a cybersecurity services firm. I'm joined by my co-host, Chuck Wood, and our guest hey. today is Caleb Fernari, founder and CTO of Startups Group. So Caleb, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Startups? Sure, yeah. So I got my start in DevOps, I don't know, I guess about 15 years ago before it was really called DevOps. I grew up in the Bay Area in California, Kind of got into that kind of thing from a sysadmin build release background fairly early on. Went to some of the early meetups and things like that. Consulted in DevOps, did some freelancing, worked with some big companies, a lot of startups, and eventually started uh, the Startups Group to sort of bring flexible DevOps help to clients that you know maybe need some help getting started with DevOps. Maybe they need some help, you know, doing DevOps continuously, but in a more flexible manner where they don't have to hire someone full time or try to sort through freelancers and things like that. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So maybe just to get started, you know, when I think about DevOps and a lot of the companies that I consult to, or I see a lot of, a lot of companies, either they have like legacy tech or, you know, maybe they're just sort of, you know, they're, they're in the startup mode and that sort of thing. But I find that one thing is sort of constant is that I think people get sort of caught up in either the sort of the excitement or the hype of what DevOps is supposed to be all about. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. And is, is that, you know, is that part of the problem or, or why do you think that DevOps transformations hit roadblocks? I, I think it's a broad question and, and, and I'm hoping that maybe that sort of gets our, our discussions going. Yeah, absolutely. I think that probably the main reason that you see DevOps transformations or just initiatives right in the DevOps space failing is sort of bad expectations around what it actually takes to uh, to do DevOps or what DevOps is. In many cases, you'll see teams that think DevOps is just, oh, we need to implement this set of tools or, you know, this solution. They treat it as a purely technical problem when really it's a multifaceted cultural technical process problem. So if you look at it holistically, you know, you tend to sort of realize the scope of the problem much quicker than someone who's coming at it purely from the tech side or purely from the culture or the the process side. So in... In a short sort of nutshell, that's that's really why I think a lot of DevOps sort of initiatives fail early on. People think it's either, you know, one specific thing or they have expectations that it's going to be very quick when, you know, in my experience, it needs to be a process of continuous improvement, continuous implementation. You never arrive at DevOps, right? It's something that you work on continuously. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you sort of described it the way you did, because I feel like you know, as an example, I see this all the time where you have like a, a position description, right? They're hiring. What are they hiring for? A DevOps engineer. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it's just, it's a, it's a misnomer, right? It's, it's, it's like, you've sort of like flipped things around and, you know, it's like, Hey, I did this. I do the same thing today, what I did yesterday, but now 
I'm no longer called a sysadmin. I'm now called a DevOps engineer. <laughs> um, I, I find that often is that like DevOps gets thrown almost like the dev is not part of it. It's the ops people get the name change. And I feel like, you know, but the two are still siloed off of each other. So the devs and you have the ops and nothing's changed except that the ops now have different titles. Do you, do you see that or, or? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that is a point of contention in the, I don't want to call it the DevOps industry, right? But just in the general sort of DevOps field, you know, some companies refuse to have DevOps engineer in their job titles, which is fine. You know, some call them site reliability engineers or sysadmins or, you know, whatever it is, right? At the end of the day, most of them are doing similar things. They're handling either physical infrastructure plus cloud or cloud-only infrastructure or physical-only infrastructure. But they're doing the same kinds of things and implementing the same types of technology and tools as we've always been. You know, the title has really just changed a bit. I personally think that, you know, it's one of those things where it's not ideal, but I do use the term DevOps engineer a lot because it's just so commonly used when you're hiring for DevOps or, you know, you're just talking about it with uh, technical leaders or things like that. They're all going to expect that you're going to talk about DevOps engineering and DevOps engineers and those kinds of things. So it's really just become a term that can have kind of two meanings. And as long as we recognize that, then I think it's, you know, it's fine to call it whatever you want, as long as you understand what it's really about. Well, and I want to just jump in here on a couple of things. One is, as you talked about um, how it's the people and the technology, and a lot of people just focus on the technology. I've seen this in just about every technical aspect of anything I've done, where if you have some initiative fail, whether it's dev, because that's where most of my experience is, or ops, or DevOps, or anything else. The core issue, if you really boil it down, is almost always going to be people. And the other thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, the sort of flow between ops and DevOps and, and dev, it is, it's supposed to be this empowering thing. And I've worked at a lot of companies where, yeah, they had the DevOps guys or just the ops guys. But yeah, it, there was that barrier. And it makes it really, really hard to get what you need on both ends, right? I've seen the frustrations go both ways. Yeah, that's something you see a lot where, you know, a company tries to implement DevOps or they start to do DevOps and really the people that are actually doing the work just see it as essentially a threat to either their their job and their livelihood or a bunch of extra work that they're expected to take on in addition mm -hmm. to their daily workload, right? So getting... Getting buy-in from people, like you said, it is a people problem at its core. It's not a technical problem. The tools are pretty well defined. You know, they're generally when you see things, you know, go sideways when it comes to DevOps, it's not that a tool failed or that it's a technical issue. It's almost always that the process and the people were not in place. And generally there was no buy-in from the people that are actually doing the work. So I kind of look at this as a two a two part thing where you have technical leaders like you know executives and managers trying to implement DevOps from the top down, and then sometimes you'll have you know just ops people or DevOps engineers or whatever trying to implement it from the bottom up without a lot of technical management buy in. Right, either way can work. The approach, of course, looks a little bit different if you're if you're going bottom up generally advise, you know, really thinking about how you can show value, not only to management, but to your coworkers and colleagues very quickly, like implement small wins, show them how the tools can work, help them understand why having these processes and things like that is better, how it makes their lives easier and, you know, leads to better results for the whole company. If it's top down, it's basically the same thing. You've got to be 
a little bit careful that you're not trying to like shove DevOps down anyone's throat, right? You see that sometimes where it's like a manager comes in and says, okay, now we're going to do DevOps and we're doing this tool and we're doing things this way without any real discussion with their team. And that does not work, right? You're going to instantly hit the sort of entrenched resistance to change that people just generally have. They want to do their job. They don't want to, you know, try to deal with a bunch of new stuff that they don't really understand or that they don't see value in, right? So it's really important, especially if you're a manager, you still have to kind of use the bottom-up approach where you're really talking to your people in the trenches, doing the work, showing them how this makes their lives easier, how it makes their lives better. And if you get buy-in from them on that, then you're, you're already halfway there. You left off the part where he goes, I just got back from this awesome conference. <laughs> that, that's the way those Definitely. changes always went, right? Is yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, dev teams, you know, we're doing Agile now, guys. Agile. Well, why? Well, I just got back from this awesome conference. Yeah. Or they right. bring a consultant in that's like certified in oh, something. Yeah. And oh, yeah, this consultant is now going to tell us what to do. Right. And that also doesn't really tend to work. Yeah. That well. Yeah. That, that always made me feel good. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So not that I've been on the receiving end of this, but yeah. <laughs> oh, no. N- none of us that, right? It's just no, never. something we read about in Dilbert or something. That's right. So, you know, Caleb, one thing you mentioned a, a bit ago, and I want to get back to it because I think it's it, one of my favorite aspects of the whole sort of, you know, DevOps world or, or thought process is, you know, borrowing from, from Lean and looking at things like safety, right? And and the, the blameless postmortem, right? So when you think about like process breakdowns that you mentioned before, I feel like that's, you know, process breakdowns, I see it all the time, you know, whether it's on the, you know, IT side, I see it all the time on security operations too. And I feel like it's just a huge challenge to get people to like, not be part of this sort of blame game and saying root cause analysis, like who did the wrong thing and sort of say, hey guys, how do we do this better? Like blameless, you know? And I feel like that's, I don't know why, but that just seems to be such a hurdle for so many organizations. Yeah, that's that's completely correct. And I, I also don't have all the answers for that. I think it's a very difficult problem, probably one of the most difficult, you know, problems that organizations face when they're trying to do DevOps or just, you know, sort of improve their process generally you have to blame the process, not the people, right? If your process doesn't take human error into account, then you're going to have failures, right? Because people are people, none of us are perfect. And that's something where you do need some kind of management by it, I think, because generally the blame you see coming in after an outage or a failure of some kind or a security incident or any of those kind of things, it's usually top down. You know, the people in the trenches, they understand why it happened. They can empathize with their colleague who, you know, accidentally, you know, pushed the wrong button or whatever. So it's really key in those cases that management understands what, you know, sort of blameless postmortems and things like that mean. And then actually, you know, lives that. Quite often you'll see lip service to it. And then, you know, emails will go out, oh, you know, John, he pushed the wrong button and took the website down or, you know, whatever. And that's, that's not how that works, right? It needs to be, oh, our process broke. It allowed a, you know, a thing to happen which should not have been allowed to happen. Here's how we've improved the process so that that can't happen again or it's less likely to happen next time. I think Amazon, you know, for all their sort of organizational issues, some people love it, some people don't. But Amazon Web Services does a really good job with this. If you read their postmortems, it's always about how their process broke down 
and how they fix the process. It doesn't blame a team. It doesn't blame a person. It doesn't name a manager or anything like that. It's just, here's our process. Here's what happened. Here's what went wrong in the process. And here's what we did to fix that process. And if you really exemplify that as a leader or a manager, people pick up on it, right? And if you don't, then people also pick up on that. And I think that's that's really the key when it comes to that is it needs to be a top-down thing where people are really living it and not just paying lip service to a concept. Yeah, I know I think you're you're hitting on that on an important point though. Like like you said earlier, you know, there are certain things you can do bottom up versus top down. And, and I agree. I don't think this is one that you can really do bottom up because let's face it, it's the ones at the top, the leaders who are able to hire and fire, which is usually what ends up happening, right? I mean, it's, you know, when it's finger pointing and blaming, then somebody usually gets moved along. Hey, you know, Jeff made the wrong call and, you know, Jeff is no longer with the company, right? That's usually how that, that story ends. Um, Dang it, Jeff. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> no, it's, but, you know, I, I feel like that that's right. You know, that, that's really what it is. It's building the trust all the way from the top down. And if people don't trust their leaders that, they've got their backs, then yeah, it's just like, wow. You know, and, and, and I don't want to go down this this too far, but I feel like this is an important point because you can never really fix processes and focus on fixing processes until you sort of figure out that being blameless is such a huge component of it. Yeah, that's that's right. If if you have a situation where, you know, Jeff messes up the uh, you know, deployment or something, right, and ends up fired, that leaves like psych psychological scars on a company. It, it doesn't go yeah. away quickly. And people will remember that for a very long time. So, you know, you have to kind of think about even avoiding the optics of that. You know, maybe maybe yeah. you have someone that you needed to get rid of anyway, but doing it right after they mess something up is probably not, not the way to do it. Like, I think you have to even think about it to that level where one, one sort of incident that looks like someone got blamed for something will will be remembered for a long time. So you really have to be very careful to to think about the optics of it and you know talk about the process, right? Like if you're if you're always talking about the process and not the people, I think that helps a lot because people start to focus on the process and thinking about how the process can be better and how they can improve that versus like, oh, this person needs to be better at their job, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then what happens, the other part of this that it enables is then if somebody isn't implementing the process as stated, then you can start having the conversation, hey, look, your job is to do this the way that we all agreed to. And you can, you know, you can, you can then fire them for that. But it's a different thing than when it's okay, well, so and so dropped the whole database. So now we run backups on the database, right? And you make sure that you run it right before you do any changes on the database in case blah, 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 right? And so if you're fixing these problems continually, and then somebody is reckless, the team will back you up getting rid of them if they are consistently, you know, ignoring the process and not doing things the way that everybody else has agreed to and therefore causing everybody else pain. But that's a different conversation from Jeff screwed up. Goodbye, Jeff. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if someone's not following the process, I mean, sometimes you do have people who just don't want to follow the process and they're probably just not a great fit for that team, right? If, if they can't yeah. or won't follow the processes as outlined. But quite often I find if somebody's not following the process, it's not malicious. It's not that they don't want right. to, it's that the process is broken, right? Mm -hmm. Or the process yeah. is excessively cumbersome or manual or time consuming or, you know, whatever it is, right? So if you're a manager and you have people not following your processes as they're outlined, I would talk to those people about why 
And maybe they just don't want to. And that's, you know, an issue that you can deal with. But quite often, you'll find that it's actually your process, again, focusing on the process, like we just talked about, look at your processes, figure out what is wrong with the process first, and then think about whether, you know, people are following them and things like that. If people aren't following them, it's usually the process, not the person. Not always, but usually. Well, and I like that going back to initially, you know, what we were talking about where, yeah, you know, it's people and process and technology, right? And it's all of these things working together. And so, yeah, just to narrow it down to any one thing is a little bit, it's just going to lead you down paths where you don't get to the root issue unless you consider them all. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a bit reductive if you're looking at any one uh, aspect. You need to look at it holistically. It's It's a whole set of, you know, moving parts that need to move together in tandem in order to work properly. Yep. So we've talked a lot about process now, and, and we talked a little bit about people. You know, I think you mentioned from a technology standpoint, you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, the certain tools. And, and I'm wondering from your, in your mindset, are there, you know, are there, I guess, baseline or, or you know, if, if you're talking about a team that's sort of moving into the DevOps world, right, that they're trying to sort of change their culture and the way that they operate, do they continue using the same tools? Do they have to change? Are there certain tools that you have to adopt just because without that, you're not going to be successful? Love to hear your your, your thoughts on that because I, I guess I, I hadn't really considered it that way that, that, there, that there might be. But yeah, just love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, yeah. I think there's no one answer to that question. Of course, it's going to depend on the team and, you know, what tools they're already using versus what is state of the art. A lot of it has to do with also where you're hosting your, you know, infrastructure or your tech. If you're in the cloud, it's going to look a little bit different than if you're in a data center, right? Or if you're, you know, hybrid with both locations, it's going to look a little bit different. But I would say there's a couple things that any company looking at, you know, a DevOps transformation or, you know, moving towards, and I don't even like the term DevOps transformation because I think it it's too one-off. It implies like you do this thing and then you're DevOps, right? right? But right. if you're looking at implementing DevOps <laughs> process and, you know, making DevOps a part of your organizational process and your organizational DNA, CI servers, I think are really key. Source control, CI servers, getting your builds kind of reliable, repeatable. That's one of the biggest wins I think you can do for developers because, you know, yeah, working in like the startup world, which, you know, yeah. we do a lot of we obviously most startups are starting out with GitHub or GitLab or something. And, you know, they're using Jenkins or GitLab CI or, you know, whatever, whatever it is they're using for CI. But we often forget, at least for me, because I'm not as exposed to that world, the sort of whole world of legacy enterprise and organizations where even version control for their code can sometimes be like a foreign concept. You know, they're storing it on like an FTP server somewhere or, you know, something like that. And so for them, that's a big step to get their their code into source control, get the CI server going and those kind of things. So I mentioned that first because I, I don't want to leave those organizations out of the conversation. If you're a startup and you're kind of like cloud native and you're already in AWS and you've already got your CI systems going and you know, those kind of things, you know, I would look at tools like Terraform you know, it's, it's also probably pretty standard for a lot of startups today, but there's still a lot that aren't using it that probably should be. You know, getting, getting your cloud infrastructure version controlled, which is really what Terraform does for you, is almost as much of a win as getting your builds and your software into like a CI system. If you can repeatably and reliably spin up your stack in the cloud, that's, that's a huge win for your developers. They can start to 
you know, do environments based on feature branches or, you know, things like that. It really moves your development velocity along. Your developers are no longer sort of reliant on your ops people to spin up environments for them or manage things or, you know, handle deployments or things like that. So CI servers and getting like Terraform or some kind of cloud automation in place for organizations that are in the cloud. I think those are those are big ones. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, l- let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresindevopspodcast.com slash Raygun. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, you're starting to talk about code repositories and such, and a lot of environments I work in, yeah, they either have. To be honest, I mean, I think this is a good thing. I have, I don't really see companies that don't have any kind of code repository. They usually have oh, what's Microsoft like Team Server, Team whatever, Team. Yes, or, Team Foundation Server. Team TFS. Foundation Server. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or yeah, you know, or, or maybe they're a, a Jenkins shop or something like that. But you know, I. I that, that makes sense that you have to get into, you know, sort of move that along into a continuous integration type of a, a situation. Yeah, or even SBN, I, you know, still sort of pops up around once in a while. But okay, no, that, that makes sense. And, you know, one thing, I'm you know, talking about legacy IT environments, right? And, you know, one thing that I think that could be a showstopper, you know, or one of the biggest roadblocks, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, for, you know, in the legacy world, I see this all the time where organizations that have tried to sort of mature their IT processes, right, get their get control over their IT processes, they really focus on change management. And one of the, and we see this on the security side too, like we really sort of look at this, you know, closely within organizations and say, hey, do developers have the ability to promote code into production? That's a question we ask all the time, because from a pure change management, change control standpoint, you don't want developers to be able to promote their own code into production. But if you are trying to move more into a DevOps world, then you do want to enable and empower your dev teams to be able to promote code into production when they feel like it's you know ready or when you know according to processes, getting back to that idea. Again, wanted to you know hear your thoughts on that, but I I, I feel like that could be really sort of a, a cultural shift that might be difficult for, for companies to sort of get their arms around or their heads around. 
Yeah, and it's a two-pronged thing because it's security, you know, plus, you know, process and and sometimes, you know, audit requirements require that, you know, people can't touch yeah. production and things like that. So, yeah. I think it depends on your organization a little bit. Like startups quite often you've only got a few engineers, you know, then, you know, they're probably going into the server and looking at things anyway. Right. A little bit different. <laughs> if you're, yeah, and if you're if you're a bigger organization, then it becomes very different if you have compliance requirements or something like that. That's a whole, you know, different sort of set of yeah. things. So, and that's where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like it's it's uh, a requirement in some environments for different, yep. you know, clientele or different types of software. You know, your risk profile looks a little bit different depending on what you're doing, right? So you do have to keep those things in mind. It is a constraint. It doesn't need to be an either or thing, though. There are a lot of tools that allow you to kind of give your developers the flexibility to not promote code directly to production, but to test their code, you know, get their own, you know, branch specific environments or things like that, and then have some kind of an authorization process when the code is ready to go. You can still automate that, but make it a restricted automation that somebody has to manually approve, right, in order Mm -hmm. to send code to production. It doesn't mean you can't do continuous integration or even continuous deployment. You can still do continuous deployment to a developer environment or a test environment or a QA environment. Quite often what we'll see in large organizations is they'll have several environments, right? Developers that kind of do their thing with their environments. Then they'll have a more formal QA environment where there's you know, more of a QA process going on. And then there's somebody you know, with the authorization to actually review the code going into production and actually, you know, push that button or, you know, make the uh, production deployment happen. And that's separate from what the developers have access to. There's a lot of tools that allow you to do that. You know, one of the, the key things for this type of architecture is making sure you have different AWS accounts for, for different, you know, sort of um, sections of the organization, right? Or, you know, whether it's Google Cloud or AWS or, or Azure or whatever you're using, you don't want your developers to necessarily have access to your production account. And that's actually good practice for any organization, regardless of size. Keeping things separate by account is much, much simpler than trying to manage, you know, some kind of cloud, you know, permissions and authentication to keep people out of the wrong resources and stop people from accidentally deleting a production, you know, piece of infrastructure or, you know, things like that. So, Separate accounts helps a lot. Some, you know, places will take it as far as having, you know, separate uh, CI servers for production and, and stuff like that. I think the important thing is that the process for deploying to production looks the same as the process that developers is using. If those look the same, production deployments are going to go pretty smoothly. If you have separate mm-hmm. processes for that, then you're going to have developers changing things and it breaks the production deployment. And that's where you start to see issues where maybe ops people in charge of running production get frustrated because developers are breaking things and they blame the developers and developers like, no, we don't have any visibility into that environment. So you can't, you know, hold us responsible for it and things like that. So make sure your processes look the same no matter which environment. And that solves a lot of those issues right off the bat. And and I think this probably dovetails into what you were just saying, but I think the other one of the issues I see all the time is that non-prod environments don't mimic prod. And so now the infrastructure isn't mimicking it. And so what worked in non-prod doesn't work in prod, you know? And, and so, yeah. you know, similar type of a problem, but it's so common, at least I'd say, again, in my experience, that's very common in on-prem where, you mm-hmm. know, prod 
product uh, infrastructure is top notch or whatever, like it's built well with high availability and all this other stuff. And, you know, the QA environment is running on somebody's old workstation. So <laughs> really works well for there. It doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't go well into prod. Yep. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. I see that in the cloud world a lot as well, though. It's not just on-prem. Quite often you'll have production sort of processes set up by like ops people or sysadmins or, you know, things like that. And then they don't take into account developers' needs, right? So the process looks completely different because they set it up the way they wanted it for production, but developers sort of, you know, process and, and their needs were not taken into account. So the developers get frustrated and they kind of just do their own thing. And then it starts to look completely different from production. And then you end up back at that situation I just described where production deployments start breaking. And, you know, it's like, well, it's working in the test environment, but it's not working in production and people start blaming each other. Right. So you got to make sure everyone's sort of, you know, pulling the same way, uh, using the same processes. But to do that, you have to make sure that your processes cater not only to the ops people and your production environment, but also to your developers and that they're good for developers. They you know, make developers' lives easier, not harder. Right, right. So it's all about building consistent processes. It's about having environments that are mimicking each other. If we're doing that, mm -hmm. then even if I'm saying, hey, you know, developers cannot promote code, that's okay. The admins, dev, whatever they're called, you know, DevOps engineers or admins or whatever, they can push the button as long as that process has been streamlined and you know, and is consistent and, um, you know, sort of known across groups, et cetera. It seems like that's what you're saying, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. If the process is the same across different environments or, you know, whatever it is, then who who's authorizing it doesn't matter nearly as much or who's performing the deployment. If it's automated and it's generally the same process, then you're going to get basically the same results out the other side. If it's not, if people are doing things manually, then it's going to be different for every person that does it. Or if you know you have a different process for your developers versus your production environment, then things diverge and that's where you run into issues. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I wanted to maybe just change gears for a moment. Is it possible to outsource your, you know, again, your sort of DevOps processes or your transformation or, you know, does it all have to be done in-house? It feels like it usually is done that way, but but can some of these pieces be done can be you know can they be outsourced and how does that work yeah so i may be a little biased you know answering this because that's part <laughs> of what my company does but i i always emphasize you know devops is not something you can outsource what you can outsource is some of the you know work getting there but it does need to be a cultural change within your organization right so implementing specific tools or getting your ci stuff set up or you know getting terraform in place or things like that these are all things that you you can get help with externally. And sometimes, you know, you'll want to actually train your own people or have someone help train your internal staff on these things so they can take over. But fundamentally, no, like DevOps, like we talked about earlier, is a cultural thing. It can't really be outsourced. You can get help with it from outside, but the change has to come from the organization within, whether that's someone doing the bottom down or bottom up you know, kind of leadership like we talked about earlier, where they're they're kind of helping bring things to the team and implement things. Or if it's, you know, top down with management coming and getting consensus amongst people, it does has to come from you, ultimately, the, you know, the organizational stakeholders, the teams that are actually doing the work, you know, you, you can get help from outside for specific parts of it. 
and, you know, coaching for people, things like that. But, you know, it's not something where you just say, okay, we're going to bring these consultants in and they're going to make us DevOps now, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So, okay. So you said that the, you could probably outsource maybe, you know, building out your tools. What about your processes? Can, can you sort of outsource? And, and I don't think you could completely divorce, you know, your, your internal folks from, from the outsourcers. But have you done that before? Um, you know, worked with uh, organizations to sort of build those processes that we were just talking about, right? That are consistent, that are, people are trained on them, people understand them. They have like, you know, sort of a, a feedback loop built into them. Is that something that you have to do, you know, on the inside or, or can part of that be outsourced? Yeah, so I guess to really discuss this, we have to talk about kind of what the definition of outsourcing is, right? If you're talking pure outsourcing where you're bringing someone in from the outside as a temporary consultant and they're, you know, helping you do something, the answer is probably no. Uh, the processes, in order to really work, need to be specific to your organization. You need to get buy-in from, you know, your developers, your ops people, the whole team needs to be on board and preferably the whole company, right? Because DevOps is not only a, a dev and ops thing, security as well, right? Like DevSecOps is a thing now. And then, I mean, you even see the spilling over into like marketing where marketing people are integrating more with the developers and the product side of things and, and things like that. It's really a way of working across the organization. So for process specifically, that of course has to be internal what you can do is have someone come in and help guide your organization on developing those processes. So if it's someone telling you, this is how you have to do things from the outside, it will not work. If someone's coming in and talking to all the stakeholders in your organization, helping them to have that conversation and to collaborate, that can work. It's really a matter of how you approach it. So whether that's outsourcing or insourcing or you know, whatever that is, you know, I think that it's it's really important to think about it as an internal thing that someone can help guide your organization towards, but it is not something that someone can tell you how to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, you know, I, I sort of asked the question sort of half knowing the, the response, but I, I'm always curious to hear because I know that you work with a lot of companies and I'm, I was just curious to hear your, your take on that because I feel like you know, there's probably certain pieces and parts that you could probably help companies with, but but yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that you can't just come in and uh, and forklift in a DevOps process or or yeah. you know, set of uh, you know a whole transformation that that's not going to happen. So yeah, yeah. there are I've, there are best practices right that you can kind of guide companies towards and say generally this is what works, but you can't tell them this is what you need to do. Right. Right. Yeah, I've worked at places where they brought in folks and they kind of got treated like part of the team or part of the rest of the company, right? And mm -hmm. they were in there to set up. I've seen it done for QA. I've seen it done for DevOps. I've seen it done for Agile, right? And so they're around for four to six months. And what they're doing is they're essentially helping install that culture and install those processes so that when they're gone, yeah, they have champions that are still there that'll continue to do it. And and that's how I've seen it work. So at that point, then you can speed up the process because they show up and they say, look, this is a process I've seen work at other places. And so we're going to put it into place and then we're going to use the feedback mechanisms and the, you know, and the process improvement stuff and all this stuff just to kind of take things from, this is what I've seen work to, here's what's going to work here. And 
eventually you'll wind up a lot of times with something that's pretty different from where you start. But because they know where some of the big bear traps are, they kind of walk you around those. You don't get stuck in the bog as much. Yeah. I think if you're looking at bringing in someone to help with DevOps on any level, whether it's technical or process or, or all of the above, look for someone that asks a lot of questions because you don't want someone who's going to tell you what to do. You want someone who's going to ask the right questions that help your organization move towards uh, you know, a more sort of efficient and collaborative way of doing things rather than you know coming in and telling people, okay, this is what we're going to do now because that never works. Yeah. All right. Well, Caleb, any last thoughts that you want to sort of, you know, leave us with on the, you know, on the journey of moving towards DevOps? Yeah, I think I'll just tell you what I tell kind of all of our clients, you know, which is it's a process. It's not a destination. It's probably going to be longer and harder than you think it will be to, to really get to where you want to go. You know, the, the, the journey is really, you know, difficult sometimes but it is probably more valuable than you think it will be. If you really get to a point where your organization is working in a, you know, a DevOps way, again, kind of a buzzword, but if you, if you get to that point where your organization is working together rather than fighting with each other, especially amongst like Dev and Ops and things like that, you know, it, it's really a radical transformation. If you look at companies that do this successfully and you look at them you know, before they did it and then you look at them 12 months later, and what they're doing and the kinds of things they're doing. They're doing the, the right things faster. Everyone's happier. You know, it really can transform the entire company's DNA, so to speak, if it's done right. But there are pitfalls along the way, like we've just talked about. There's a lot of things to take into consideration, you know, as you, as you implement sort of those things and, and get your company working in a DevOps way. But it is definitely worth it. Absolutely. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Well, cool. Well, why don't we transition now into the picks part of the uh, program? Chuck, do you want to lead us off with uh, something you've got this week? Yeah. So this week, I'm kind of putting together a summit. It's for podcasters, and it'll probably be done with by the time this comes out. But I'm working on another one, and it's for people who want to be in the top 5% of dev or DevOps. And I'm going to be talking to people kind of at the pinnacle of the the industry uh, across dev and DevOps, just to get their input on, okay, you know, what do you do to get, you know, to get to that place, right? To get to that top 5%. And so what I'm really looking for is where people get stuck and how to get past it. And a lot of times it really just comes down to analysis paralysis. There's so much out there to learn and it's like, okay, you know, what do I even focus on? Or 
the other the other issue I run into is a lot of people don't even know what it looks like get where they want to go. So anyway, that that's kind of where I'm pushing right now. So just keep an eye out on devchat.tv. And I'll also put a link in to the show notes when I have the actual URL, but it's probably going to be a most valuable dev summit. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Besides that, I just listened to a book or I've been listening to a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And I'm really enjoying that. It, it's kind of the masterclass in narrative and the book's like 60 years old, hmm. but he goes back through and he kind of explains you know, here in Greek mythology and Christianity and Muslim or uh, Buddhist religions and traditions, you, you kind of have this journey that the, the hero or the protagonist goes on. And, you know, whether it's a, a well-regarded religious figure or he, he cites like Divine Comedy or Hercules or, I mean, some of these other, you know, just characters out of, you know, mythology or religion. And yeah, you see it over and over and over again that they kind of follow these patterns. And so it's been really interesting to figure out how to tell these stories and, you know, really kind of get, get a handle on what that means. So uh, I'm going to pick that, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Cool. All right. I've got an interesting one that's come up this week, although for listeners, though, it'll be uh, probably a few weeks after this. Hopefully this will have died down a little bit, but this week we are just in the throes of the solar winds supply chain attack. And I just just to give everyone sort of a maybe a, a bit of an insider's view of this. It's it's to me this is really sort of a fascinating type of cyber threat and, and, and attack where the most likely perpetrated by a nation state, uh, meaning that they have that level of sophistication and capability. But to go after a company like SolarWinds, not because they could care less about SolarWinds as a company, and that's not the ultimate target, but they do it in order to go after the customers of SolarWinds. So the amount of sophistication of of first breaching a company, you know, a software company, then from there, breaching their software repository, you know, a lot of the stuff we were just talking about today, right? Being able to then manipulate the code base and literally inject code into the code base. It's digitally signed. So when you download, you know, an update, and these updates were from between May and March, sorry, between March and May of this year. So last spring is when is when they uh, came out. So you would download them from, from the SolarWinds, you know, official site as whatever it was, a, you know, feature update or, or what have you. And all of a sudden you have a Trojanized piece of code but it's been digitally signed by SolarWinds. So, I mean, just sort of imagine that for a moment, just the, the level of sophistication to sort of inject yourself into that process without the company knowing about it. And the only way that this whole thing came to light is because one of the companies that was ultimately breached by this was a company, a security company called FireEye, and who runs SolarWinds internally, apparently. So they were able to detect activity by the attacker, trace it back to the SolarWinds software, which was basically sending commands back and forth to URLs that the bad guys control. So they were able to see that, what we call C2 traffic or command and control traffic. So you got the malware, but you got to do something with it. And what you do is the way that you control it as a, as a threat actor is you send it messages because it beacons back to a URL that they control, gets commands you know, back to the malware, does something, 
So the FireEye guys were able to detect that, figure out what was going on, how they got in through solar winds, and that's really sort of blew this whole thing up because now all of a sudden we're realizing how many other companies and government agencies, that's really seems to be the target, were, you know, are using solar winds and have been compromised by this threat actor. So, you know, you you might have thousands of solar winds com- customers that have this malware running on their computers and their systems and their networks, but the bad, you know, the, the threat actors couldn't care less about them. They're probably after 10, 20, whatever it is, a much smaller number of actual targets that they were after. So like I say, we're just in the first week of this, we don't, we'll probably hear about more victims, companies that have been compromised through this. But yeah, just a very interesting type of an attack and certainly very scary type of an attack, but something that I think everyone should just be aware of because this is not, by, by any stretch, this is not the first time that this type of an attack has been perpetrated. So anyway, that's my pick because that's just what's consuming my, uh, my brain this week. So with that, Caleb, I'm going to ask you, uh, do you have any picks for us to share with us this week? Yeah, so mine was more, more tech-based. I think it's worth calling out Terraform, the, the tool by HashiCorp used for cloud management. You know, I, I think especially large organizations, startups are pretty good about, you know, implementing it generally, but large organizations don't use it as often as they should. And I think the reason for that is people think it's all or nothing. Either you need to have your whole AWS or cloud infrastructure managed by Terraform or you don't. And the reality is you can start to do it in very small pieces and just get little, you know, pieces of your infrastructure managed and then slowly bring more of your infrastructure under management. So that would probably be my pick if you haven't looked into it or you you thought it was a huge project to move to Terraform or get Terraform going. It's really not. You can get started very small in small bite-sized pieces and then, you know, roll out incrementally across your cloud infrastructure. It's not an all or nothing thing, which seems to be an impression that a lot of uh, people have. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much, Caleb, for joining us this week. And to all of our listeners, thank you also for listening. And this will be a wrap for this week's episode of Adventures in DevOps. But hopefully you'll catch us next time. Yep. Max out, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.